congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you make sense of life? Perhaps that seems like a surprising question for the beginning of a sermon. It may even seem to be very out of place considering what we just read in the Heidelberg Catechism. And yet that question, how do you make sense of life, is very important for each one of us to consider, not just this afternoon, but every day again. By asking ourselves this question, it helps us to really keep everything in perspective. By asking it every day, we're reminded that we are on a pilgrimage. We're not home, we're making that journey to our home. And as we well know, that journey is not always an easy one. To be honest, there are times where the journey is downright painful. Yes, there are times of joy. There's also times of sadness. Circumstances of life differ from person to person and even individually change from day to day. As you're going through it, how do you make sense of it? The only possible solution for giving us hope and encouragement is to go back to the one source in which there is pure truth, the source that was also mentioned back in Lord's Day 6, namely the Scriptures, the Word of God. Because in there, God teaches us the answer to life's greatest question, Namely, how sinful man, sinful people, can dwell forever in the presence of the holy God. In the scriptures, we read about God's plan of salvation, how he carries that plan through. In the Bible, we learn of the one way that fallen man can share in the joy of salvation, namely by faith. And by focusing on this particular angle, life's greatest question and the given solution... All the details are also put into perspective. Because as we deal with salvation, we're not dealing with abstract theology. We're not dealing with dry, dusty doctrines. We are dealing with something personal. Something that has a broader impact on all of life. And to break this down, we turn to some of the famous statements that come from the Great Reformation of the 16th century. With that in mind, I proclaim to you the Word of God under the following theme, God teaches in His Word that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. And we consider faith alone, Scripture alone, and Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, if you think back to Lord, last week, with Lord's Day 6, we were presented with the one mediator and deliverer who meets the necessary qualifications. And having been presented with his person, with Lord's Day 7, we now move into the application of his work and who all shares in his benefits. First of all, there's question and answer 20. And behind that question, there's an assumption in place. Since Christ came as the second Adam, do all descendants of the first Adam share in the benefits of the second Adam as well? And at first glance, it seems like it would be a very reasonable question. 
It also fits in with that natural way of thinking. Everything needs to be fair across the board. We can take that assumption that lies behind the question and word it in a slightly different way. And by doing so, it changes the way we think. Is the deliverance through Christ automatic for all people simply by virtue of the fact that they trace their lineage back to Adam? You see how it changes our thinking. Because as soon as we hear that word automatic, and it's connected with salvation, it gives us a really bad sense. Our reformed radar goes off on high alert, and so it should. Because thinking of salvation as something automatic takes away from the work of our Savior. It minimizes the impact of sin. It takes away from the holiness of God. And so the answer to the question is actually very short and to the point. No. Salvation is not automatic, but then it explains this further when it says that there must be a connection or there must be a relationship between Christ and a person that is in place. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ. And what this means is that those who truly benefit from the work of the Savior are a limited group. Some hear that, it causes them to bristle. It sounds like there's an exclusive club. Some wonder whether or not we try to limit things too much, as though the work of Christ needs to be applied more broadly. These are some of the regular challenges that people will assert to the doctrine that we confess here in Lord's Day 7. And they ask, what makes one person different from another? What makes one person more deserving than another? You hear those questions quite frequently. Well, all of it is actually addressed in answer 20. And yet, before we go too far with any of this, we need to have our minds going in the right direction. Instead of right away questioning the exclusive group of those saved by Christ, we should actually be standing back in awe and amazement at the fact that deliverance and being saved is even possible in the first place. If you think about sin, its horrible nature and the horror of it, and we compare that with the holiness of God, then the fact that salvation is even possible in the slightest way, that's spectacular. The fact that God provided that mediator, that he opened up that way of deliverance. That's something that should never be taken lightly. That's something that should never be presumed upon. And this is the thinking that the Apostle Paul works with in Ephesians 2. He begins that chapter by speaking about who we are in our natural state. And he doesn't hold back at all. He doesn't try to soften things. He says, by nature, we are children of wrath, dead in our sins and trespasses. He doesn't say we're a little bit sick, we've got a slight problem. He says, by nature, we're dead. And it means there was nothing about us that deserved anything good from God. But here's the thing. 
being saved is not about what we deserve. It has had nothing to do with what we do. Being saved is completely the work of God for us and in us. As our confession states, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ. Notice the way things are worded. The catechism uses passive language, which implies that being grafted into Christ is something that happens to us, not something that we do ourselves. Those who are saved have not reached out in any way. They are those whom God in His grace takes and He grafts them into His Son. He makes them part of Christ by true faith. So, faith is the one way by which we are linked to our Savior. And even then, we have to think about things in the right way. Faith itself is not what saves us. Faith unites us with the one who does save us. It's also what we confess in Belgian Confession, Article 22. Meanwhile, strictly speaking... We do not mean that faith as such justifies us, for faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. Notice how it speaks about faith as the instrument. And to explain this in catechism classes, I often use this example. If you have a person who's drowning in a pond, and then someone on shore throws them a rope, lassoes them, and pulls them to shore, you won't say that the rope saved the person. The rope was simply the tool or the instrument by which they're linked to the person on shore who pulled them to safety. That's how it works with faith. It's the means, the tool, the instrument by which we are grafted into Christ, the one who saves us. Now, it's actually quite striking that the catechism uses this language of being grafted. Considering the language of question 20... It would have been easy for the authors of the Catechism to speak about those saved by Christ and to speak about them as the elect. It would have been a perfectly accurate response. But instead of going that direction, the authors speak about those grafted into Christ. In other words, they are people who are made spiritually alive. Rather than being dead in trespasses and sins, there's a new life that they have, the life of Jesus Christ, active and at work in them. We read about that in Ephesians 2 verse 4. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so those delivered by Christ are not the frozen chosen. They're not people who can go through life acting as though I deserve salvation. I deserve something good. God has to do me a favor. No, they realize that they are not the source of their own life, but that their life comes simply through their union with their Savior. And that union, that one way of being connected with Christ, is faith. 
There is no other way of sharing in his life. It's something the Apostle Paul addresses a number of times in the passages we read earlier. Sharing in the saving work of Christ does not come through works of the law, Romans 3. Rather, it is God who is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Ephesians 2 verse 8, everything we've said together comes in the words of verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, this is the gift of God. Yes, if we're going to talk about faith alone, we can't ignore one of the other statements from the Reformation. Grace alone. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Faith is not something that is naturally a part of us. We are not automatically connected by Christ just because we're human beings. It is all by God's grace, gift of his love. Now we said earlier, being saved through faith, being grafted into Christ by faith, it's something in which we're passive. God is active. But considering the last part of answer 20, we see that faith leads to activity. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. There is that last part. But at the same time, we shouldn't understand that this is somehow our contribution to being saved. Remember how we said earlier, faith in Christ makes us alive once again. That's because when God gives his people that gift of faith, it's not just something that stays inside them. It's something that makes them active. They accept Christ and all his benefits. And this is different than going out and doing something. Faith is the instrument by which we, who have nothing to offer, simply receive the benefits of our mediator. It is the channel through which everything we need to live in fellowship with God comes to us. And it makes all the difference in the world. Being united with our Savior, the one who has suffered, the one who has died, it means that all of life is good. His benefits, they mean that we enjoy communion with God. We're assured of God's love, a love from which there is nothing that can separate us. And it's that hope of the faith that actually is at work and it shapes our perspective and thinking in every circumstance. Because through faith we realize no matter what's happening around us, regardless of what's taking place in our own lives, we still have the benefits of Christ. We're those who are saved from eternal death through faith. It cannot be stated enough Faith is the only link to Christ. 
There is no other way to be connected to him and receive his benefits. And they're not given automatically. His work applies only for those who believe in him. And that's why the call of the gospel is that urgent call to each and every person, a call that goes out time and time and time again, the call to repent and believe. Because without believing, without faith, everything is hopeless. Without faith, there's no way to share in Christ and be saved. Without faith, people have to come up with their own solutions. And they have to come up with their own form of comfort. And no matter what they dream up for themselves, it always falls short. It may give some temporary measure of relief, but it doesn't last for long. Maybe it sounds harsh to think of it that way, but that's not the decision or the thinking of man. And this is not part of a grand plot to keep people out. This is what comes from the one source that really matters, what God says in his word. We come to our second point. It's striking to notice how often the scriptures are directly mentioned or even alluded to in this Lord's Day. They're first first spoken of in answer 21. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. And with this, we're moving into the substance of faith or what it consists of. It quickly becomes clear that faith is not just a nice fuzzy feeling that exists inside of us. The truth is this, there's nothing subjective about true faith. True faith accepts the reality of everything God has revealed in his word. True faith confesses that what God has spoken is absolute objective truth and that God does not lie. God's not trying to trick us. God's not trying to lead us down the wrong path in his word. When God speaks in the word, he can be completely trusted without having any reservations. And then the scriptures also come up at the end of answer 21. We confess that true faith is something the spirit works in us by the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about what God reveals to us in the scriptures. Through his spirit, God opens our hearts. He softens our minds so that we actually understand that message of salvation. The scriptures are the tool used by the Spirit to work and strengthen faith. The Catechism will come back to this in Lord's Day 25. And yet that's something that some people do take issue with. They feel that in a sense, we're trying to limit the Holy Spirit. After all, since He's God... Can't he use whatever tool he chooses? Aren't we trying to put him in our own personal box by saying that he uses the gospel? It's no doubt true. The Spirit has the ability to use whatever means he chooses. But at the same time, the Lord reveals he has a normal instrument he uses. That's the Scriptures. 
It's also why in the confessions you find the connection between the word and the spirit emphasized so often. You can go through the catechism. You'll find many references. It's also in the canons of Dort. In every chapter, there's at least reference to the preaching of the gospel, if not an entire article dedicated to that topic. To separate the spirit from the regular tool that he uses is going against what the scriptures reveal about God's work. James, he writes that we have been brought forth from the word of truth. Paul makes it clear in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And it leads us to the next time the scriptures are referred to in this Lord's Day. We find in answer 22, the question has been asked, what then must a Christian believe? And the answer is that a Christian must believe all that is promised in the gospel as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. And it can easily happen. It's a fairly short answer, one that we become familiar with. But we miss the beauty of what our confession states here. The Word of God is not dry, dusty doctrine. It's not abstract philosophy or theology that only a select few can understand. The Word of God is not even a list of requirements and demands, along with the punishment for those who fail to live up to such things. Our confession states that the Bible contains God's promises. And those promises are truly astounding to consider. The gospel, as taught in the scriptures, is that word spoken by our Savior in John 3, verse 16, often called the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Bible contains instructions in the faith. Directions for the way of life. What the Lord speaks to us through his word is so much more than the thoughts or the opinions of man which are constantly changing over the years. What God speaks in his word is his promise for those who believe. The promise of forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life. And with that, we go back to the first mention of the scriptures in this Lord's day. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. True faith is accepting God's promise for that one way of salvation. It's accepting the fact that God has provided the way of being saved through faith in his Son, and anything less than that, again, it means man has to find his own way, not taking God at his word. It leaves people without solutions, which is true for the way of salvation, our ultimate need, but it's equally true for how we would make sense of this life. Because think of what our Father says in his word. He gives us the promise, not just some advice, but he gives us the promise that whatever we experience... He uses it for our good, to bring us on the way of salvation, ever closer to Him, nearer to glory. Romans 8, verse 28. He gives us the promise that He disciplines us, not to push us away, but for our good, 
that he deals with us as children. Hebrews 12. There's his promise that all the brokenness and all the misery that we experience, it's going to be taken away. Read Revelation. So with the word, we're dealing with the sure promise of the living God. And that's why when it comes to the word of God, it's all or it's nothing. People don't get to pick and choose what they like about God's promises or what they would prefer to ignore or set to the side because it doesn't sound scientifically accurate or politically correct. It's not up to people to take the word and then evaluate it, to decide what's true, to decide what can be trusted or what's not. Because if that is the case, even a little bit, brothers and sisters, we are in a very perilous position. If what God teaches us at one point is not true, what makes something else he says true? Cherry picking through the scriptures, picking what we like and what we don't, it means that the truth of God's word would then rest on the subjective thinking of man rather than the objective promise of God. It doesn't have to be really said, but I'm going to say it anyways. Man's thinking changes from day to day based on so many different factors. But in contrast to the changing thoughts of man, there's the word of the Lord which remains forever, 1 Peter 1, verse 25. So it's to our comfort that we can confess the unchanging truth of the Scriptures. It's to our comfort that the promise of salvation for those who believe is not something that changes from day to day. God doesn't change His mind concerning what's needed to be saved. God doesn't pull the rug out from under His people. His promise, His word, stands forever. But there is a flip side to this. It is a great triumph of the devil when believers are not found actively studying the word and meditating on God's promises. When we neglect the word, it means that our hearts and our minds are being filled with other thinking and other ideas. And it means that the study of God's word is something that must have a great priority in our lives. If you want to talk about doing devotions, if you want to talk about Bible study, if you want to talk about the preaching, it all fits together. True faith, worked and strengthened by the Spirit through the proclamation of the promise of the gospel, it simply accepts what God says to be true without any questions. And thus we say that Scripture alone is the authority for faith and for life. There is nothing equal to it. It stands for itself. It directs us to the one source of salvation, namely the mediator and deliverer whom God has provided, Christ and Christ alone. We come to our third point. 
When we talk about faith, we can't help but talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this came out already earlier in the sermon. Faith itself does not save us. Faith is what links us to the one who does save us, namely the Son of God. And you can especially think about the second half of answer 21. True faith is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life only for the sake of Christ's merits. So everything we need has been obtained for us by the Son of God. By His death on the cross, He offered the perfect sacrifice by which our sins are dealt with forever. By His perfect obedience, He has for us fulfilled all the righteousness of God's law. By His resurrection, He's restored us to the light of life in fellowship with our Creator. All of that is what we receive only for the sake of Christ's merits. It's an important point in our confession. Forgiveness of sins doesn't come from any other source. There's not a single one nor any other creature who can pay for the sins that we commit in the past and the sins we commit each day. There's not a single one who can offer to God the perfect righteousness he requires so that we're acceptable and blameless before him. No one of themselves can enter eternal life as we read in Ephesians 2, we're dead in sins and trespasses. And so what true faith does is it directs us to look away from ourselves, to look away from all other creatures, and to focus only on one, the mediator God graciously and lovingly provided for us. True faith is having that firm confidence in the objective work of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is nothing subjective. There is nothing uncertain about his work. What the Son of God has accomplished and the benefits for us that he has obtained, they cannot be changed, nor can they be altered, just because someone might think differently about them. Consider again where we learn about this work of Christ. It's not something people dreamed up not what they just experienced for themselves. It's having that sure knowledge whereby I accept as true everything God revealed in His Word. And as we can note also back in Lord's Day 6, the Word in every way directs us to the One who came to save us. Scripture alone and Christ alone actually go hand in hand. One cannot perceive the work of Christ from any other means than by the word of God. Then, brothers and sisters, notice how personal our confession makes this. True faith is not someone or a group believing on behalf of another. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true what God has revealed. True faith is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness, righteousness, and life. We're dealing with things that apply to each individual personally. It's not enough 
to be part of a group that confesses such things. This must be a conviction that lives in the heart of each one. And that can actually leave us with some mixed feelings. On the one hand, it's truly amazing to think about the benefits of Christ, which are not just for others, but also for me. It's truly a blessing of God's grace to be one of those chosen by God, to receive that gift of faith and to know that Christ has made everything right. But on the other hand, the language of our confession can leave us with some feelings of doubt. Note what it says. A sure knowledge. A firm confidence. Knowledge and confidence are clearly modified by those words sure and firm. And that's what leaves some uncomfortable. Because when we look at ourselves, and we realize we don't always feel that way. We do have thoughts. We do have questions about how certain teachings in the Scripture can be true. We do believe that Christ has obtained those benefits of salvation, but we aren't always so sure that they apply to me as an individual. What do we do with this? Are such doubts just part of life that we have to accept? Or do we need to question whether or not our faith is actually true on the basis of whether we have firm confidence? It can easily come across in such a way that the reality of our faith rests on our personal feelings about it. But that is not the intention of the catechism at this point. The authors are not trying to create some form of doubt or questions in the minds of God's people. Our salvation does not rest on how good we think our faith is. Our salvation rests on one thing alone, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ, which does not change. Think about his work. Think about everything he's done. His death, his resurrection. Those are events that have taken place. They can't be go- you can't go back in history and change them. So the benefits that Christ has obtained can't be taken away either. Certainly we go through highs and we go through lows. The times where our faith we feel is strong and times where we feel that our faith is very weak. And we acknowledge that each time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't have perfect faith. But how we feel about faith doesn't change what our Savior has done for us. For those times when questions or doubts even start to trickle into our mind, the Lord directs us exactly where to go. He doesn't say ponder it for yourself. He doesn't say try to figure out some kind of solution. Try to have peace in your conscience, peace in your mind, peace in your heart. He says, go back to my word. Go back to my promises that I give you in the word. And yes, that includes placing ourselves under the preaching continually. Knowing what Christ has done for us, even though we might not always be completely assured about it, it's still what helps us to make sense of life. 
knowing all the benefits he's obtained for us, it keeps everything in the right perspective. Because as we continue to make our way through this veil of tears, we may have the certainty that yes, we fall short and we daily sin, but we have forgiveness. Even those sins we don't realize that we commit each day, even those sins that are so horrible, we blush in shame each time we think of them and we can't seem to purge them from our minds no matter how hard we try. They're all forgiven through the blood of the Lamb of God. We may have the assurance that while we do not live perfect lives, through faith the perfect obedience of our Savior is given to us. We receive wonderful gifts, and there's only one requirement. Accept them with a believing heart. Perhaps it sounds too good to be true, too simple, too easy. But in his dealings with the people, with his people, the Lord doesn't try to make it complicated. Think about Israel in the wilderness when they were punished because of their grumbling and rebellion by means of deadly snakes, the Lord didn't rescue them by some grand medical miracle. He had very simple instructions. Look up at that snake on the staff and you will be saved. There'd be healing. It's the same for salvation. Very simple. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Knowing and believing these things that Christ alone has obtained for us, it allows us to live in the joy of faith each day of our lives. In the sorrow and strife, we lift up our heads and we go forward with that confidence of the faith. Because what we have in Christ cannot be taken away. The promise of God in the gospel is that the work of Jesus Christ is not just for everyone else. It's also for me. So brothers and sisters, look to your Savior at all times. In humility, in all moments of weakness, go on your knees at the foot of the cross. Gaze with the eyes of faith into the empty tomb. And know for certain that what your Savior has accomplished cannot be changed and can never be taken away. Amen.